I'm Steve. I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is February 7th, 2010. I'm Ellen, and I'm an alcoholic, and my sobriety date is June 11th, 2013. Welcome to SoberPod. We would like to remind you that we on SoberPod do not speak for or represent any outside recovery or 12-step groups. All opinions expressed on SoberPod are those of the individual speaking them, whether they regret it or not. We are not addiction health or mental health professionals and strongly urge you to listen in moderation. Welcome to another episode of SoberPod. We are here again in an undisclosed location, safe from the AA police that I'm sure are hot on our tails. <laughs> this week, I'm sure you noticed in our intro that it is just myself and Ellen. Ellen is joining us again. She's gracious enough to be our co- uh, my co-host this week. Yay. As uh, Carl has some other obligations he's tending to. You know those, uh, you know, typical alcoholic, typical drunk. You just can't count on him for shit. He doesn't show up when he's supposed to. He's at the liquor store. Yeah, his priorities are all wrong. Actually, no, that's... This was going to be a surprise. But this last week was Carl's four-year anniversary, actually. It was his his sobriety date, uh, August 22nd. So, yay! Good job, Carl. You didn't run back into the burning building for four years. That's a big deal. (laughs) But... Well, to celebrate his four years, Carl wanted to do an episode on relapsing. So he decided to go out and start drinking again to do the research. He's out just making a total shit show of his life. He's getting drunk. He's pissing on things. He's yelling at cops. And he's doing that all for you listeners. So when he gets back next week, he'll get to tell you what relapsing was like. What a sacrifice. What a sacrifice indeed. Carl's a good man. I don't care what most people say about him. But actually, no, Carl just has some other obligations. He will be back next week. And uh, this episode is getting out later than usual this weekend. We had a very interesting time trying to get everything set up for this. But luckily, we persevered. And so now you get to hear us uh, tell you all about ourselves for yet another week. Because that's the Sober Pod way, talking about ourselves because we're not self-centered anymore. Heck yeah. That's right. So Ellen is going to be the co-host again this week. Uh, uh, we're excited to have her back. Ellen originally was our first female guest last week and also our first drinking career resume guest. And I thought that was a great episode. And she was available this week because I'm her boyfriend. So she's just uh, ready to be taken hostage at a moment's notice. How do you rope me into this stuff for real? I don't know. Well, I mean, if you had to get if you had to get people to teach you how to not ruin your life on a daily basis, it's really not that hard to talk you into <laughs> a g- great idea like dating myself. So, here we are again and before we get to our topic this week, which is six tips for dating in recovery, we have a debut segment here on Sober Pod, something that I actually am pretty excited about. And the segment is called being worst-footed. Now, the idea of being worst-footed is sharing stories about ourselves that when we were stuff we did when we were drinking or even when we were sober, and basically stories that don't cast us in a very good light, that are embarrassing, that you would think you would be ashamed of. Like, why on earth would you say that to into a, a podcast when people can actually listen to this and they will hear what you say? And the entire reason behind Worst Footed is it's not purely voyeuristic. The main reason is because when I first got sober, something that really got my attention was people being able to talk about things that they had done when they were when they were drinking and also stuff they had done sober and they weren't 
they didn't seem tortured by it. They could talk openly and honestly about stuff that really made me blush just hearing about it. But that was a big attraction for me because I was still holding a lot of secrets when I first got sober. That's a very common thing. A lot of people have a lot of stuff that they're ashamed about because we don't make great decisions when we're out drinking. So the idea of Worst Footed is to share these stories openly and honestly because hopefully for someone out there maybe that's listening, it can let them know you're not the only one that does these things. You're not the only one that has secrets or might be embarrassed or ashamed about something. And it is possible. Two things are possible. One, to get sober and also to live in peace with those things that might currently be haunting you. Um, what Did you have that kind of experience when you first got sober, Ellen? Did you notice the way people talked about that stuff? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I loved listening to people laugh about things in the past that you would be like, wow, um, I don't think I would share that with people out loud in public. <laughs> and they were they were sharing, and not only were they sharing, but they were laughing about it. And that was a real attraction because I looked at that and said, well, if they can laugh about it, I, I want to learn to laugh about those, you know, ugly things that we do, ugly things that I did in the past. And I want to, I would love to get to that place. So it was a huge attraction. It kept me coming back to meetings and it gave me a little laugh sometimes because I would relate and go, Hey, I did those things too. And the cool thing was when you actually shared about something like that, um, there was always somebody who came up to you after the meeting and said, I'm really glad you shared about that. You know, I did the same thing or they'll tell you, Oh, I did the same thing, but I did it worse and listen to my story. And then you feel better. You're like, wow. At least uh, I'm not as worse-footed as that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Look at, look at Ellen. Again, she impressed us last week on the episode. And just like that, she's working in my own nomenclature for the title of this segment into her sentences before I am. Very impressive. But no, that's also a very good point of that. Not only do you get people walking up to you after the meeting sometimes that are, of course, saying that they can relate and people being laughing along with you and having a good time. But I've seen people be applauded for announcing things like paying their child support yes. or for showing up to work or for not getting fired that week. Like it's, <laughs> but you know what? There's something so sweet about it. Like, because everyone can relate that we're not going to put up that facade of that. These things aren't a big deal because if you're not sober or if you're trying to get sober, then these things are a big deal. Like what sound like little things to other people, those accomplishments, they make a big difference. So Progress, not perfection. Right. And just a, a sort of a forewarning for those listening. This is going to be a, a sort of AA heavy episode. Uh, we'll try not to use too much of the terminology for that. But I only warn you in advance because our article for this week is uh, coming from someone who is sort of talking from the AA perspective. So hopefully that won't turn you off. But just thought I'd give you a heads up. But anyway, so the inaugural worst footed, I figured would go to me. So I'm going to go ahead and put my worst foot forward uh, like I often do. It's part of the reason why Ellen's been with me for five years. She just loves that I uh, don't seem to know what tact is. It definitely boosts my ego because all I have to do is look at you and I'm like, oh, well, at least I'm not Steve. <laughs> yep. She's just choosing to be with me. So just that, kidding, baby. that says about her what it will. Uh, so my worst footed, a story I love talking about in um, in meetings and sharing with people is just because it's as nutty as it is. 
back when I was drinking, you know, we all went to parties and we all went to big get togethers and stuff. And I was always that guy that would be at the party around two or three in the morning when most people had left and, you know, most people are passing out or going to sleep and I'm the one, you know, I'm going to be up all night drinking. If there's still beer to be drank, I'm going to keep drinking. And what I would like to do at these parties is I'd be outside, usually alone by this time, like I said, two, three, maybe four in the morning. And I'd be walking around to all of the empty beer bottles and I'd be checking uh, the beer bottles to see if they were in fact empty. And the moment I found, and this would be after the beer was gone, by the way, because usually that's when people start taking off, but I'd be going around checking those beer bottles and I would find inevitably, you know, more than a few that still had half a beer, quarter of a beer. Maybe I'd get lucky and someone would have opened a beer and just sort of left it behind and forgot about it. And I would go around looking for those and I would drink them. Now, that may not sound too horrible at first, but keep in mind, I am outside when I'm doing this. So anyone that's been to a large get together where there's a lot of drinking going on and you're outside, people are smoking. They're going to be smoking cigarettes, maybe among other things. But for the purpose of this, it's the cigarettes that are relevant. Wait, let me stop you right there, because my question is, didn't you ever worry about like diseases or... You know, because, you know, there's people spit in there. I mean, did that ever cross your mind when you were doing that? Uh, short answer, no. Literally never occurred to me. <laughs> it still doesn't occur to me today, even as I tell this story. I just go, no, there's beer in there. Someone's got to drink that beer. Someone went out and bought that beer. They left it behind. Someone's got to drink it. That's just being a bad party guest to leave uh, the alcohol behind like that. Definitely. Yeah. So anyway, I'd go around and I'd find these beer bottles and inevitably there'd be one with one, two, three, four cigarette butts put out in it because people smoke and they put their butts out in the cigarette, in the beer bottles. So I'd go ahead, I'd take a look at it and see the beer to, uh, see if the beer to cigarette butt ratio was right. And for that to be, it just had to look like there's enough beer for it to be worth it. And I'd just go ahead and chug that down. So, yeah, I'm that guy. Mmm, yummy. Yep. Want another smooch, sweetie? No, no, no. But, yeah, I'm that guy. That's one of my worst footed is uh, I was the guy drinking beers with cigarette butts in them when the party was all done at the end of the night. And if someone came out asking me what I was doing, I'd just say I was helping clean up. Never mind. I would never actually throw this stuff away. I would just drink it and put it back where I found it. But... So if you have a worse footed you'd like to share with the show, feel free to tweet it at SoberPod and use the hashtag WorstFooted. The whole idea behind this is just to show that these things that we think we're all alone in and that no one can relate to are actually quite relatable. Maybe you haven't done exactly the same thing someone else has, but at the very least, you can read up on some stories and go, oh my God, I never did that. But if that guy can talk about that, then I could talk about my thing. So that's the idea. So uh, we'll get to our weekly check-in. How are you doing this week, Ellen? I'm doing great. Everything's stable. Everything's fine. Um, that's the beauty of sobriety. You know, things get stable and you just you just kind of cruise along. And a lot of things don't become like big deals anymore that used to be. So I'm kind of in that place where it's like, okay, nothing, nothing catastrophic is going on. And... Um, and that's it. Well, great. I'm doing pretty good this week. Uh, nothing new to report, really. Still job hunting. Uh, keeping busy with 
podcast stuff and trying to put out as much content as we can, uh, helping out with the family and doing stuff for them. Uh, as far as I understand it, Carl had a good week, but he'll get us all updated on that next week when he returns. So that brings us to this week's topic, which I thought would be fitting since it's, it is Ellen and myself. This is something that we could, I think, lend a uh, lend a perspective to as we have been together for what is it five years yeah about five years yep fuck is that all <laughs> Jesus. feels like more so probably everything we're going to be telling you is some probably something you shouldn't do so i don't know <laughs> yeah the majority so anyway this week's topic is six tips for dating and recovery so ellen and i will be going through our article which was posted on rehabs.com April 30th, 2014, and is authored by Alexis Stein. So we're going to go ahead and go through our article point by point, as we have on prior episodes with other articles. And we're just going to lend you some of our experience with some of what uh, Miss Stein or Mrs. Stein, I'm not sure, is talking about. So to begin, recovery is a time for self-care and reflection, establishing structure and controlling urges. Most weeks, Saturday nights are spent at 12-step meetings. Right off the bat, I don't think you should start with that sentence because that doesn't sound very appealing, spending every Saturday night at a 12-step meeting. But when you're getting sober, it does sort of limit your uh, social engagements. The I don't know. Some people might be uh, happy about spending Saturday night at a 12-step meeting. I know I was at first because I knew if I went home and I was alone that I was going to drink again. So I didn't. I didn't really trust myself to not not be in a group of people that were trying to be sober and, you know, just kind of covering myself in that, um, that support. So for me, my, I'm just saying my experience is that, um, Friday and Saturday nights, you know, I, I was there and it was something that I kind of got used to and also look forward to because, you know, there would be people there that you were happy to see and it was like seeing your friends every weekend. So I so liked it. You actually looked forward to going to the Saturday night meetings? Yeah. Really? Yeah, at first when yeah, when I was first sober, yeah. I looked forward to the meeting part of it, I guess, but the social part no, well, because I was very socially inept, but also too it did like I don't know, maybe it's just that pessimistic side of me, which is probably all sides of me, but <laughs> That I was there and I remember being consciously aware of this is fucking depressing. <laughs> like I'm spending my Saturday nights at a goddamn AA speaker meeting. That's the type of meeting we were at in early sobriety. At least I was. I remember seeing you there uh, too. But so if. Well, it, during part of my drinking days, you know, I was alone a lot. So yeah. it was it some in some ways it was an improvement for me. And then, um, I mean, yeah, I had fun and did party nights too but there were uh periods of my drinking that i was all alone all weekend because nobody wanted to hang out with me and i didn't really want to go out with them because you know that would mean i would have to leave the home leave the house try to stay sober long enough maybe to drive if i even could and then so the car ride i wouldn't be able to drink during a car ride it was pretty nuts mm. All right, I guess that makes sense. So, to be clear, no professional would ever recommend dating in early recovery. But we have to be realistic and look at cases individually. Whether you're single or getting sober, or recovery is part of your relationship, here are some tips to help you 
date smarter and safer. So our first tip from uh, Alexis is to be in therapy. Recovery is an ongoing process of self-discovery. A therapeutic environment is a necessity for learning more functional patterns of behavior and gaining insight into the origins of your disease. What do you think, Ellen? Is that true? Um, I think therapy is a very important part uh, because, well, there's a lot of things that you want to find out uh, about yourself. And usually a therapist is going to be able to help you out with that because they sit down and they talk to probably hundreds or thousands of people and they're going to see a pattern probably um, a lot faster than, than you do. And they might be able to guide you in the right direction, especially if you're willing to accept the guidance. And normally, uh, if somebody's uh, serious about sobriety, they're going to be uh, really open to that guidance and and helping you out. Plus, if you're uh, mentally ill and don't know it yet, um, a lot of alcoholics and addicts actually have some kind of mental illness going on in the background and um, the drug use and the alcoholism actually kind of help with that mental illness. So if you have something like that, they're going to definitely be able to um, tell you about that and refer you to the proper care, like a psychiatrist or medication or things that you need that might be very helpful in staying sober. Yeah. No, that is very true. And obviously therapy, it's, I would always recommend it. I always think it's a plus and it's a good idea, not just for alcoholics and addicts and the like. I think just generally going to therapy is a good idea, but especially in recovery, it doesn't hurt. Like there's, there's nowhere. Basically, I think any recovery program or recovery sort of philosophy worth its salt would not have an issue with someone also going to therapy outside of that. Um, you know, that is un unless, of course, that, well, I was going to say unless, of course, that uh, avenue of recovery itself is a therapeutic program, and then maybe you don't need to. Maybe it's all encompassing within that therapeutic environment you're already in. But it's not a, if, if you're in something like Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Cocaine Anonymous, there's a whole lot of them, or SMART, or uh, Celebrate Recovery, Celebrate Recovery, and the many other programs that are out there, then they aren't catch-alls. They're not, oh, we're going to solve every single problem you've got. They are actually designed to be rather specific to what you're going there for in terms of your substance use and trying to achieve sobriety. So- Especially for uh, getting yourself ready to today, I know it seems like we're straying from the topic, but I would just say that even if you're not considering dating and sobriety, there's nothing wrong with considering therapy or being in therapy. Actually, I'm I'm a big I'm a big proponent of that. I'm pro therapy. I'm gonna say it right now. Uh, me too, and I'm pro you therapy too. <laughs> Why does that keep coming up today? Not the first time I've heard that. Uh, plus, they'll be able to let you know um, if you're ready for the for dating. Yeah. So if um, if you're questioning whether you're ready for dating, you might you might want to run it by a professional. I mean, what what could it hurt to get an extra opinion? Yeah. And I mean, if you're around any sort of recovery program, you can find all sorts of people with all sorts of opinions on the dating thing. And 
One tip I would just like to give is because I've seen a lot of people do this in recovery. And um, as far as getting advice, I've seen guys literally ask other guys for advice on their relationships. And the guy they're asking advice from is in the middle of a divorce. (laughs) And they still go to that guy. And then they wonder why their situation isn't improving. And this is where I'll just go ahead and make that little recommendation of if you if you're asking someone for help, you know, it never hurts to go to an expert. But if you're asking someone that's not an expert, and I mean that in terms of like educate their uh, education, then look for someone who has what you want. Look for someone that you know that they're in a happy relationship. They seem to get along really well with their significant other. And it's you you want to learn from someone who's actually doing it. Because we can all give advice all day long, but if that advice comes from a place of experience, it, it tends to work out much better for those heeding to said advice. Absolutely. Observing the person that you're going to ask advice from is probably a great suggestion. So in therapy, uh, just to finish up this little section, in therapy, you'll work on assessing readiness, especially for the dating game. If your partner needs support, Couples counseling and Al-Anon meetings are recommended. Again, Al-Anon, for those of you that may not be aware, Al-Anon is a 12-step recovery program geared towards the family and friends, uh, including significant others of alcoholics and addicts. So uh, that's also a very good place to go. So let me ask you, if if you're the person that's not drinking and, you know, you're... Your life has, let's say, been ruined by the person that's been drinking. Whether Did you really just put ruined in air quotes? Yes. Your life has been ruined by the monstrous, addicted person <laughs> that does horrible things all the time, as so, we both know from okay, personal well, experience. Well, why should that person go to a meeting? Why does that person need a 12-step program? Isn't it the alcoholic or the addict? Well, to put it rudely... <laughs> If the best you can pick out of the dating market is the fall down drunk and or addict, <laughs> then maybe some self uh, reflection is in order. If that's the if you look at the toy that's missing the legs and <laughs> it's all scratched up and it's all beat to hell and it just doesn't look good and they're actually trying to give it away from the store <laughs> and that's the one you look at and you say that's the best. Hmm, I don't know. Just uh, maybe you might want to ask yourself, why am I picking such awful things? <laughs> or yeah, okay. Well, thank you for explaining that. I, you know, <laughs> I wanted to throw that out there for the listeners that might be listening that maybe aren't an addict or an alcoholic trying to get like in the mind of an alcoholic. Well, you just heard it, folks. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's obviously <laughs> just I'm just being myself when I answer like that. But no, the truth is, is that. People get in relationships and it's not always clear that someone's going to be an addict or an alcoholic or that someone is an addict or an alcoholic. That tends to happen because as addict and alcoholics, we like to hide shit. We like to keep things secret. And it's much easier when you're at a distance from somebody. So like if you start dating someone and you don't know they're an addict or an alcoholic, well, you're not moving in with them. You're not around them all the time. It's easier to hide those things and to make excuses. And these things have a way of rearing their head later on when a relationship that's been established, they, they care about them very deeply, or maybe they're family of the alcoholic. And, you know, obviously that's a that's a very difficult relationship to navigate when it's compromised by something like addiction. So Al-Anon's a great place to go to learn things like, um, well, you've been to Al-Anon. What sort of uh, things they talk about in there? 
And she hasn't been for me, by the way, because I'm actually a great example of an alcoholic in recovery, <laughs> just so you guys, just so you all know out there. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll give you that because I, you know, I definitely didn't go to Al-Anon for you. Um, I Thank would, you. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> Hear that, ladies? In case this goes south, keep that in mind. You won't have to go to Al-Anon. <laughs> well, I don't know, but. <laughs> That's true. So I went to Al-Anon for family members, and it's very helpful to get the other perspective. Um, it's kind of different because I am both an alcoholic and an Al-Anon. Uh, they call that a double winner. So winner, winner, I win both prizes. Um, because I've been affected by someone who's an alcoholic, and also I am an alcoholic myself. So going in there and listening to the people talk about their loved ones and. Uh, I think it's more about control issues. So trying to control the addict and alcoholic at the expense of um, not taking care of yourself or, you know, letting important things go that you used to do, like hobbies or friends, because you're too busy, you know, checking up on the alcoholic. It teaches you another way to deal with the alcoholic, which I think is very important. And... um it also teaches you to um, let the alcoholic just um, have their natural consequences of their behavior and not enabling them or um, basically letting them fall and being okay with it. And, I mean, that sounds super harsh, but anybody who's in that spot where they're pulling their hair out about the alcoholic or addict in their life, um, I would highly, highly suggest that you attend at least five Al-Anon meetings just to um, get an understanding about the the format and kind of the philosophies and stuff like that. Don't just go to one and say, oh, no, that's not for me. Try at least five and then, you know, kind of go from there. Yeah, no, it's a very it's a very good idea. I've met a lot of people in Al-Anon. I know a uh, Actually, we both know quite a few people in relationships, and they've had a lot of long-term successful relationships, and I've heard some pretty powerful stories about the difference that it's made uh, with the the alcoholic being in Al-Anon, or I'm sorry, in, well, they could be in both, being in recovery and in Al-Anon, because sometimes, I mean, sometimes both like, uh, for instance, a husband and wife, some they might both be in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and in Al-Anon, so... It's a it's a great resource for things like that, and um, if nothing else, it gives you people to relate to, even if you're not like a fan of the program or you don't believe it'll work. So there's nothing wrong with checking it out. Uh, moving on, we've got be upfront about your recovery. Our next tip. So oftentimes, people in recovery are apprehensive about revealing their sobriety for fear of judgment. Facing uncharted dating territory without your usual liquid courage can increase your risk for relapse. <laughs> You might make up excuses as to why you aren't drinking, like, I'm on an antibiotic, or I have to get up early for work. Or I'm pregnant. Yeah, and that's always <laughs> a lie. You should run. You should move out of the state, because that means she's planning on getting pregnant. But that, that's a rule that I learned from my father. They are never pregnant the first time they tell you. <laughs> Dad was a strange man. But 
but back to our article, but lies won't eliminate the possibility of future dates at tempting bars and restaurants, which is a good point. If you don't tell the person that you're an alcoholic and they're saying, hey, let's go check out this, you know, like uh, let's go to wine country or let's go out to this really nice uh, bar or go dancing or something like that. Well, if you're not in a really solid place of your recovery, then that might mess you up a little bit. Uh, it is imperative to approach this topic honestly, like you would hopefully approach the rest of your relationship. <laughs> you know this what? This is definitely written for alcoholics and addicts. <laughs> yeah, I'll politely I'll politely say to Mrs. Stein, "That's a good point, but fuck you. You don't got to throw it right in the middle of the goddamn article." Like, and the hopefully is in uh, parentheses, so yeah. hopefully you'll approach. The rest of your relationship truthfully. Yeah. Unless, like, like we, you know, like we would lie. Come on. Yeah. Well, I mean, I only lie to Ellen when it's easier than telling <laughs> the truth. And that's just because she's got this irrational reaction thing that, you know, I, I keep telling her to work on that in therapy. But, you know, she's just. Sure. Not, yeah. Whatever. Know, one of these days. Your sobriety is a part of your life and there's no need to be ashamed of the amazing work you have done to get to this point. Being upfront, if not preemptive will help you to reduce the chance of a slip-up, avoiding risky surroundings for dates, and weed out people who may be uncomfortable with dating someone in recovery. That last point, I think, is actually a very good one because when it says the uh, weed out people who may be uncomfortable with dating someone in recovery, I've met people in recovery that have a phobia of dating other people in recovery. And I'm guessing that it stems from some pretty bad experiences. Like, there's... Uh, there's people that both Ellen and I know that <laughs> have had relationships with addicts and alcoholics like in the past. And I mean, a long time ago, I mean, decades ago, and they still talk about it in a way that shows that that the trauma that they underwent from that experience is still very fresh in their mind. And so you don't want to. And, you know, basically, it's 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 something we've got to. It's for your sake to be honest about it and for the other person's sake. Well, plus uh, the people that might be uncomfortable are people that aren't, you know, drinkers or never have been drinkers. Um, or actually, when I read that, I think about somebody who might be a drinker and is uncomfortable with you because you're in, in recovery. Because I know when I was drinking... Some people that were in recovery made me uncomfortable because I didn't, maybe I just didn't want to face whatever it was. Um, but I, for some reason, I didn't trust them. I was like, no, you know, drinking is the only way to party or have fun or date or whatever. And to see somebody who wasn't a drinker, you know, it just, uh, it was like a foreign thing to me. I just didn't understand it. So, um, that might be a red flag if they're uncomfortable with dating someone in recovery, kind of figure out the reason why are they, um, is it because they drink a lot? You know, you could watch that or is it because, um, they knew somebody who is in recovery or they've dated someone who relapsed or, you know, they just don't want to be around an addict or alcoholic because somebody in their family, I mean, all of those are really good things to ask if you kind of get the vibe that they're uncomfortable with it. You know, either ask or observe, you know, maybe why they are. Yeah, that and it just occurred to me, too. It's just setting it's just making it easier for yourself 
to say it because, yeah, you might feel uncomfortable in saying, oh, I'm an alcoholic or I have a drinking problem or I'm an addict, whatever it is. But it's much easier to say it up front before any sort of emotional investment is made. Like it doesn't have to be the first thing you say on the first date, but it should come up, I think, relatively early. And that way, because if you say that later and then you discover this person has a problem with it or they're freaked out by it or something, then you're just setting yourself up to get into a nasty, you know. And that's my question. So when should you bring up this topic? Uh, I don't think you should bring it up on the first date or you know, the first thing that comes out of your mouth, you know, you might want to find out if you actually like that person, you know, first before just kind of putting it out there. I don't know. I mean, when when should you say something like that? I think immediately following orgasm the first time you have sex. <laughs> that's when I would say it. I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> say, oh, oh, I'm an alcoholic. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. That just happened. That must be the liquid courage, huh? Yes. <laughs> oh, God. Hey, Carl, there's your quote for the episode. That must be your liquid courage. Disgusting. I knew I loved you for a reason. I don't know why that came to me. It came to me. <laughs> I could tell you why. But, oh, wait. Sorry. This is a family-friendly show. Uh, no, it's all right, kids. Come on back. Come on back. <laughs> God damn it. That was amazing. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move off of that one because uh, we got to leave on a high note. So our next tip, have solid sober time. So solid sober time is entirely subjective as recovery is an individual process. However, it is important to consider that 12 step purports waiting one full year before starting a new relationship. The first year should be focused on working the program and working on yourself. Recovering addicts need time to learn how to cope with stressors and deal with urges. Beginning a new relationship too early can add to those stressors and actually tap into the parts of the brain associated with addiction. So this one, I mean, I think she she lays it out very nicely. Like, those are all very good reasons to consider that. I would point out, though... When it says the 12-step purports waiting full year, not that I think it makes much of a difference, but it's not outlined anywhere in Alcoholics Anonymous that, like, as a hard and fast rule, you should wait one full year before you get into a relationship. If you're single when you get sober, there's no, like, there's nothing magical about one year. You're just sober for a year. It's just what it's trying to get at is saying that, Give yourself time. Yeah. Give yourself time. And a lot of time. Learn to live, you know, your new life because when you go into, and it's not just AA, by the way, like pretty much all of your avenues of recovery are going to require a lot of big changes because if you don't believe me, just think about it. If you're an alcoholic or an addict like I am, just the idea of being sober is a monumental change and that splits off into everything. Like for me, it meant it affected how I socialized with people. It affected the places I went because the only places I went were places I could get drunk at. It affected the time that I did things because I had no reason to be out past 10 p.m. anymore after I was done drinking. Uh, I had no reason to be up late anymore. I had no reason that I couldn't wake up early, like all that stuff. Like I had to learn to do that stuff in time. But it's just to give an example of that when people say, Things like, um, you know, if nothing changes, nothing changes, everything's got to change, stuff like that. 
it's not like you have to consciously make those changes. It's because like getting sober and making the adjustments to do so comfortably, it's just going to sort of by proxy change most of the things in your life. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's hopefully it's going to be a priority if if you're serious about it. And I just want to stress that it, it's saying to wait a full year before starting a new relationship. If you're already in a relationship or already married, it doesn't mean you have to break up with that person or anything, but there's going to be a lot of changes that happen and the person in your life is going to notice that um, and they may or may not like that. And plus, I, you know, for me, I feel like um, waiting a year is a great idea because um, you're, you're sorting out a lot of personal things and especially if, you know, the relationships you were in were alcoholic or bar-based. Um, it's going to take you time to learn about you, just your new tastes in life, your, you know, discovering you. Because for me, you know, drinking was a way of just forgetting everything, forgetting about anything I cared about, just um, all all my uh, decisions and all my actions were towards getting that next drink. So when you're focused on that for so long and then all of a sudden that drink is taken away, now I have to focus on me. Now I have to like deal with all these things that I didn't deal with because I would just try to drink them away. So if you add a new relationship into that mix, I think you're really asking for a lot. I mean, I'm not saying it can't be done, but it's really hard. That's very true. And just sort of in general, that being in a relationship, you know, let's say you're, you're newly sober and you've been sober for, let's say, six months and you meet the future Mr. or Mrs. Somebody like you meet Mr. or Mrs. Perfect six months sober in <laughs> and it's not it's never going to you know, it's it's a great relationship. There's nothing wrong with it. Well, just sort of by its nature of relationship there's going to be emotional there's going to be some emotional turmoil that comes with it you know people there there can be disagreements or misunderstandings or things like that and when you get into those highly emotional states especially in early sobriety you have well I I'll speak for myself I had a tendency to want to revert back to the mean which is my way of saying I wanted to drink Revert back to the mean? <laughs> yeah. Isn't that what you say? I thought you meant like you're a mean person. Well, no, we all know that. <laughs> Come on, catch up with us, stupid. <laughs> He's not mean at all. I'm not mean. She is stupid. <laughs> Look who she's with. Hey. But no, like I, I, had a, I had a tendency to go back to the ways I reacted before, which was, I mean, it's six months is a big deal to be sober that long, but- I have a feeling it's going to pale in comparison to the years spent getting drunk at everything like I did before. So when I say I, you know, revert back to my old ways, um, that just means that it takes time to learn those things. And the more emotional something is, the more emotional backlash you feel, the stronger that urge is going to want to be of to numb the feelings instead of experiencing them and processing, processing them. And uh, going through them with other people or with the help of your sobriety program. So, um, and that will take us to take it slow. If you do date too soon, 
you may also be using the relationship as a way to quell the urges in early recovery. It is common for addicts to seek instant gratification and experience a transfer of addictions, particularly in the earlier phases. Take time in sobriety to reset those dopamine receptors. Be aware that diving into a new relationship can trigger the same receptors. My first question is, how did she know that I call my junk a dopamine receptor? <laughs> that's how, Why that's, is it always about that? Because it's it's very important to me. It's it's near and dear to my balls, like my <laughs> grandfather used to say. Again, a very strange man. Ask yourself if you are really ready to share time with your significant other or if you're using relationships as a distraction. Well, I think a really important question to ask, because I've watched people um, get together in recovery, and this might be mean, but I look at both. But she only watched them get together in recovery with their consent. Ellen's a bit of a watcher. Whatever. For anyone <laughs> out there that didn't know. You guys know what I mean, right? Right? Hey, it no. wasn't it wasn't bad, like he said. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, go ahead. <laughs> so in observing people who were um, you know, maybe three, four, six months sober and they were getting together with other people that were either new or three, six months sober. It was, uh, my question was always, well, what do they have to offer each other? Because that's one thing when I was getting started in sobriety, I didn't really have a lot to offer somebody else. I think in a way it kind of, um, in fact, it was very selfish of me to hold on to someone because they were doing something good for me, rather like give me attention or help me keep my mind off, you know, the problems that I created with my drinking. So I think a good question to ask is what do I have to offer somebody? So in that early in sobriety, I think it's really hard to have something to offer because you're always kind of in this space where you're thinking about yourself, you're thinking about your recovery. Um, so I, you know, I was thinking about that as well as um, the transfer of addictions. The, there is such thing as love addiction, sex addiction, and relationship addiction. And uh, like this article says, it does um, use the same parts of the brain that um, you get you that use that get used when you are drinking or when you're getting high. So um, it's a very easy transition to go from, okay, I'm getting sober from this stuff, but, oh, you know, I need to find, an, you know, unconsciously you're finding another way to kind of up those dopamine receptors. Yeah, you're finding a new way. And without even getting too technical, too, I think we can boil it down to <clears throat> you've lost your, you're getting away from your primary way of feeling better. We'll just put it like that. So you go to something else that makes you feel good. And I think we can all relate to getting our rocks off makes us feel good. Like, I don't see any need to be too technical about it. I'm just trying to put it in the in an understandable way that when you find those things, and that's why like an early recovery, it's not just with things like relationships or uh, sex. It's also like with food or exercise or Really anything that takes our mind off of the way we're currently feeling kind of brings us to now and we feel good. And that's sort of what we're looking for. But it happens a lot, like with relationships. I've seen people come in and 
they just start, you know, bouncing around like a ping pong ball of, you know, relationship to relationship. And it's not a judgment on their part. Like I would have done that, but no one, literally no one would have me when I first got sober. It took a while before someone came along that was looking for a, it took a while before someone came along that was looking for a bargain deal like Ellen that said, hey, you do- hey, well, you know, I'm doing all right now, but it's not, no, it's, it's not a poor me thing. It's saying that basically if you were interested in me back in that time, then you didn't exactly have standards because <laughs> like, as I, you know, you may not believe it listening to this, but like, this isn't a character. When I say the shit that I say most of the time, that's usually how I talk. And I remember actually a while ago, well before we started dating, I was uh, talking to Ellen once at our local uh, club, (laughs) and she asked me straight out in a one-on-one conversation if I had a mental illness. And (laughs) the strange thing is, I didn't take offense to that. I just just answered, no, I don't. And well, because I actually, well, I technically do. I do have obsessive compulsive disorder, but like- I didn't have a mental illness, and being an alcoholic, obviously, an alcoholic and an addict is also a form of mental disorder. Which is a disease. Which is a disease. And, like, so I, but what she was getting at was I sort of knew what she was getting out of, to be like, with the shit that comes out of your mouth on a regular basis, what the fuck kind of glitch is going on up in your brain box, son? And I was saying, like, you know what? We don't know. I believe uh, I asked you if you had Tourette's syndrome. You thought I had some form of Tourette's syndrome, yes, and you're actually not the first person that's asked me that. <laughs> that's uh, that's how good of a diag- diagnosis I had. A diagnosis, <laughs> yeah. A diagnostician. A diagnostician. Or whatever, whatever I don't know are. if that's a real thing outside of House MD. Oh, but House is it so might cool. be. I do love that show. House anyway. is a good show. But yeah, so it's it's basically saying like the idea of getting sober and getting into a program is to get down to uh, to borrow a phrase from the big book. Um, causes and conditions eventually, like somewhere along your path of sobriety. So you don't want to go in and find a way to anesthetize the pain, the emotional pain that you have, because that emotional pain is usually, I think, going to be indicative of a direction to go and explore that'll help you find what some of those, uh, for lack of a better term, trigger points are that keep you active in your addiction. So you, you don't want to mask that. Plus, I think, you know, if there's someone who's interested in you or you're interested in them and it's kind of a mutual thing, I'm thinking that if they uh, respect you enough and you tell them, hey, I'm trying to get sober, I'm in recovery and I'm focusing on this, I think that if they love you or respect you enough, they're willing, they would be willing to wait. Okay. Maybe. Like, I don't know. See, this is clearly coming from anyone out there. Like, you may not believe this, but Ellen's a very attractive woman. And I only say you may not believe this because she's with me. But she's a very attractive woman. That is the kind of statement that comes from someone who's been attractive their whole life that has never been told, oh, I'm just too busy to date or something right now. If you're a guy out there and a chick says she's too busy to date, she's too busy to date you. Just move on. You don't need to wait around for that. She ain't coming around. But if you're a woman and a guy says that to you, he might actually be telling the truth. But what, um, what are you talking about? If if he tells you, if he that tells he's you he's in recovery and he's yeah that he's working on it, he so might he be mu- telling the truth. He might be telling the truth. He might be. I doubt. I you know I don't know. Otherwise, like, you might just be a train wreck, and he doesn't want anything <laughs> to do with you. Just saying. But um, so. 
if you're already dating someone, like we mentioned before, there's no, you don't, obviously you don't have to get divorced. You don't have to split up or anything like that. Like if you get into a program and they advocate that kind of thing, then they're insane. You should get away from them. Like, obviously it's different if it's an abusive relationship or if there's some sort of toxicity like that, but, uh, be aware there's likely going to be some big changes in the dynamic of your relationship as you get sober. Um, I wish Carl was here because he is married and I'd like to ask him what his uh, experience like with that is. I'm sure he can weigh in, but I'm sure we'll come back to this topic in one form or another as the show goes on. But well, I have experience, not with the marriage, but um, when I got sober, I was in a relationship. Oh, that's that's true. How yeah, did, like so two yeah, year, go ahead and share well, It was about, I want to say two years, two-year relationship. And then I got sober. At first, it was okay. But then um, I think the fact that I was going to 12-step meetings like every day and every weekend and all the time, especially... When I get the urge to drink, um, he was understanding, but he, I, I don't think he liked that, you know, that he couldn't be the one to help me out. He, he didn't understand why do I have to go to meetings? He didn't understand the, the kind of, um, uh, he didn't understand that I had to talk to another alcoholic or addict because if you're not an alcoholic or addict, I mean, I hate to break it to you, but you really don't understand i mean yeah i don't i don't want to like freeze you out or anything but it's it's easier to talk to somebody who's been through the same thing and there's kind of this magic about it and especially being in a room full of people that have been through what you've been through um it gives you it well gave me a kind of peace and of course, you know, he didn't like all the guys hugging me. He didn't, you know, so it did create some kind of problems. And I like to give Ellen big, long hugs. <laughs> so, you know, in his mind, you know, maybe he was thinking that I was starting a relationship with these people because you do, you do talk about really um, deep stuff when you're in the rooms. But if you're an alcoholic or addict, you know that it's just for the purpose of like are, you know, putting your worst foot forward because um, the saying goes, you're only as sick as your secret. So if you get that out and you feel, you know, you just feel better, you kind of unload and, and you, you know, you don't unload on the person. Giggity. <laughs> I knew that you were going to do that. <laughs> um, you don't unload on the person that might not understand. So if you're gonna, if you're going to continue to be in a relationship, that's fine. Just my suggestion would be to, you know, keep, you know, you don't have to be like super open about every little thing that you're thinking and probably freak them out. But you do want to be open as far as, you know, I'm going to a meeting because I am feeling the urge to drink right now and I really don't want to do that. You know, they might get upset, but hey, you know, that's the way it goes if you are, you know, really serious about sobriety. Right. That's very true. I mean, there's in making that attempt to go out and pursue your sobriety, it's not always going to be a quote unquote convenient sort of thing to do. And it can in in itself put strain on a relationship because the changing of the dynamic and the new things that you're doing that can come off a little alarming at first um, to someone else, like what Ellen's describing, they might be threatened by 
all of a sudden there's these new people and you're describing these these stories and things you're sharing with them and stuff they're sharing with you. And it can sound like, you know, I could see that being a little threatening because you might feel like, well, you know, where's the room for me? I, I'm not a part of this little world. And that's where I, I also tell, like, if I'm working with, uh, with guys in sobriety and they're, you know, I, I tell them, you, you've got to go out of your way to make, make your partner know that they're still, they're still your partner. Like they're still important to you. You still love them. You still care about them. It's like, you know, you've, you've got it. I think it's a good idea to make that little sort of extra effort to clue them in on what's going on. Like not obviously not completely full disclosure. That's actually a bad idea for other reasons, but just also so they don't feel isolated because you're making a new life, but you don't want them to feel like they're making a, you're making a new life without them. So their you know, their feelings are worth considering. And if your experience was more like mine, I was also in a relationship when I got sober and uh, she was just thrilled because she was the reason I went to AA because she was convinced I had that drinking problem. And it turns (laughs) out she was right. So uh, sometimes it is going to be an easier transition. Thank you to her. Yes. Uh, Actually, no, I support that statement 100 percent. So then moving on, we also have actually this next statement that she has, I think, is a very important one. Um, or actually, I don't know. Did you want to elaborate on try to avoid making any big decisions within your first year, such as moving in together, marriage or children? Oh, yes. Um, so my ex, he wanted, he wanted to move in. Um, and, uh, looking back at it, I, I'm not sure. And just, just to clarify real quick, it says within your first year of sobriety, try to avoid making these big decisions. Right. And I, I remember discussing it with my sponsor and she kind of brought up this point of, hey, you know, you might not want to do this right now. And going back to that waiting thing. Um, so I, I turned it down just because I was going to be moving away, you know, from my sobriety group. I was going to be like 90 miles away from uh, where I got sober and, you know, everything was kind of, I was trying to kind of redo my life. And and how, how long into your sobriety was this? This was eight months. Eight months. Eight okay. months. So she kind of brought this point up and I thought, well, you know, that is true. Like she was, she was more worried um, about me moving away from my support. And for an alcoholic, I, you know, it's, it's really easy to like pick up and move to a new place where nobody knows you. And then you can just, why don't you get into a little bit of your experience with how frequently you had moved (laughs) just to point out why Ellen can say something like it's easy to move. Okay. Well, gosh, how many times did I move? Okay. I'm, I'm counting them in my head right now. Oh, I want to say well, one do, 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 Yeah, yeah. Do, do. One point I'm <laughs> I'm probably moved like 5 times in 3 years. I mean, I'm sure some of you can beat that, you know, hands down. But for me that was a lot because I I I was raised in the same house for many 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 years. So to go from that and, you know, cuz 
course, you know, I always had problems with roommates. They were always just jerks, you know? Bastards. Yeah, they treated me badly. All their fault. Right? (laughs) Or they didn't really treat me badly. I was just, I always had some kind of complaint or whatever. But, um, yeah, so for some alcoholics, it's very easy to just pick up and move and go to a new place where nobody knows you and they don't know about your... um, quote-unquote problem, I mean, at least not yet, and uh, just kind of start over. Yeah. Um, I think I think that's helpful that you describe that because now we can, as you get into uh, the story with your, with your ex and this proposal he had to move in together, we can rule that Ellen was not averse to moving. No. She'd done that quite a few times. So uh, why don't you go ahead and pick up back there again? Yeah, so... Um, I said no, and um, I think that went over okay. I don't know. I'm not sure. Well, was but- it was it a when you had that conversation with your sponsor? She made that recommendation. Hey, you probably shouldn't move down there. Or do all that stuff. Was it as simple as her saying, "Oh, you shouldn't do that," and you say, "Oh, okay." Um. No, I mean she was already bringing up points that I was thinking about already. It was just good to hear them out loud. Um, it was the, the thing about it, and I'm kind of jumping ahead to our, to the next part of the article is my sobriety came first. So I didn't, at that point, I didn't want to do anything that I thought would, would jeopardize it. And so I was willing to make the sacrifice of kind of keeping the status quo for a year and, always having it in my mind, well, you know, if if this big decision is meant to be, then it can wait four more months. You know, it's no big deal. And it turns out that a month later, we broke up. So it was probably a good thing because um, I don't know also what his motivations were for moving in together. Maybe he saw me kind of moving away from him because he was still drinking and even though I still wanted to be with him, he, you know, maybe he saw that change in me and maybe he was trying, trying to move me away from my support system. So, um, all my friends that I talked to said that I, it was a good decision that I dodged a bullet. Um, so sometimes because my, my brain is broken, I do have to rely on other people, especially in, early sobriety some you know i had to rely on other people because the decisions i had made up to that point were not exactly working out yeah and also too it's when you have those conversations if someone that you trust in your sobriety is making a recommendation of something like that of to not do this thing then of course you can disagree yes you can disagree you can debate you can you can of course you can even uh, you can completely ignore what they said and go ahead and do it anyway. It's not a guarantee that just because you do it in your first year of sobriety, it's not going to work out well. It might work out well. I don't know. It's like, but the thing is, the the sort of default setting when it comes to decisions in sobriety, and they're especially important in early sobriety, um, is to try to try to keep the emotional upheavals at a minimum. It's like to try to maintain a sort of baseline of, I mean, life's going to happen. 
stuff is going to happen. Like people, of course, people can pass away. Accidents can happen. Jobs can be lost. All sorts of things can happen in sobriety. We have no control over and they're not going to care how sober you are. But when it comes to things that we can control, at least with a certain amount of control, we're trying to keep things as stable as possible. And it's not a permanent place. It's it's temporary. So hopefully that idea is coming across because like in Ellen's case, she she didn't just listen to her sponsor and go, oh, OK, sponsor said don't move. So I must not move. Sponsor said so. It was more of that. No, they had a genuine conversation. Her sponsor made good reasons and had a had a reason she was making that recommendation. It's not out of a desire to control her. It's to try to. Well, let's not. Let's not get up and let's not get up and run around before the fever's down sort of thing. So uh, I think that was a very good point. I'm glad you were glad you're here to share that with us. Uh, this moves into our next point. Sobriety comes first. Actually, we pretty much already kind of addressed this one, but just to uh, just to put a button on it. In order to achieve long term sobriety, you have to put your program first. This remains true regardless of your relationship status. The excitement of a new relationship can lead to a shift in priorities. You may neglect the parts of your routine that were helping you to stay sober. You may also expose yourself, hey now, to more social (laughs) situations where alcohol is available. As part of your therapeutic process, it's a good idea to understand what an enabler is and what to make sure that your partner is unmistakable and to make sure that your partner is unmistakably supportive of your sobriety. Give them time to learn and understand what your program consists of. If your partner uses drugs or alcohol, it is more likely that they could lead you down a counterproductive path. In addition, there is an increased risk there is an increased risk of relapse with breakups. If your partner is in recovery too, it is important to assess their stability as well as yours. Would you feel responsible if they relapsed? Could they feel responsible if you relapsed? Could you both indulge in a case of these screw-its together. <laughs> I know, it's so sickening. It's like, of the screw-its. You know she means fuck it. <laughs> I was wondering when you were going to use that word. Oh, I already have several times. But it's just part of my charm. You don't even notice. Oh, yes. But going back over that, actually, that's... Uh, give them time to learn and understand what your program consists of. Okay, fair enough. You want to clue them in. If your partner is... Using drugs or alcohol, yes, I agree. That could be a counterproductive path. I would just put that in more, you know, accessible terms of saying that it's not a good idea to be around that stuff. But the part that I was a little, that I actually kind of, as an ideal, it sounds good, but I kind of disagree. It is a good idea to understand what an enabler is and to make sure that your partner is unmistakably supportive of your sobriety. Now, in terms of the enabler what it's saying is an enabler is basically someone that through their actions makes it easy for you to continue in your addiction. They enable you to continue your addiction. They keep you from feeling the consequences of your bad behavior, like, you know, picking you up wherever you're drunk instead of, you know, letting you drive or, you know, um, I know that sounds horrible or bailing you out of jail for the 10th time, things like that. Yeah. But I wonder about that part where it says, to make sure your partner is unmistakably supportive of your sobriety. I don't know if that, I mean, yeah, that's obviously a plus if your partner's supportive of it, but I mean, isn't that sort of up to them? I mean, it's your decision that you're getting sober. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a weird distinction here, but I think that that's a, that, Well, that, I think what they mean is 
by unmistakably um, is to make sure that your partner isn't um, pretending to be supportive of your sobriety. And then, in fact, you know, kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, jinxing it just because they want to maintain the status quo. Because there is a bit of uncomfortability with... um, your partner changing so much, even if it's a good change. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. That I guess that that word unmistakable threw me, but that's actually a very. I'm glad you elaborated on that. That actually makes a lot more sense. Um, the one I like is um, you may neglect the parts of your routine that were helping you to stay sober. So if there was um, one thing I did learn in Al-Anon is. You know, you always stick to your plans, your routine, no matter what, even even if the alcoholic wants to throw you off. Like, let's say you were planning to uh, have a day. Uh, let's say you're planning to get a manicure, for instance, and your alcoholic partner calls you and says, hey, bail me out of jail or, or whatever. You know, I'm, I'm being totally extreme and dramatic about it. It's not that extreme. Yeah. Or, you know, take me here, take me there. Um, hey, I got my dick stuck in the fence again. (laughs) Yeah, things like that. You don't neglect yourself or, you know, your routine or things that you were planning to do. So you go ahead and get that manicure, girl. You deserve it, right? Or one manicure. Yeah, whatever. That's right. (laughs) So, um, back to routines of staying sober. I mean, I don't know if maybe that was helpful, but, um, I don't know. What are... What is a good example? What is a new routine that you did when you were trying to get sober? Well, a new routine was, uh, like I said on a previous episode, uh, I would wake up, uh, watch an episode of Reba, and, uh, you know, found that to be a very charming show. Watched a lot of television. These aren't things I recommend, by the way. I would have been much better off just going to morning meetings, but because... I wasn't convinced in early sobriety that 7 a.m. was a real thing. Like, I was pretty sure people were lying when they said they did stuff at that hour of the day. So uh, I pretty much spent most of my time um, alone, isolating, and then I would go to the 5.30 meeting. And, oh, I was also in school at that time, which that part did help. But when it says uh, the excitement of a new relationship can lead you to neglect those parts of your routine that were helping you to stay sober. So if a hot girl called you and said, hey, let's go to breakfast or whatever, and then you had to miss Reba, would that have made you drink? Like, what are they talking about? Well, I think what they're talking about is that I think you can make the mistake that it's. I think it's trying to get at is that when you get in a new relationship, it feels really good. Yes. Like, it's, it's a high sort of in and of itself. Like, the you know the birds are chirping a little bit more and you know it's gosh what does that feel like everything is going <laughs> really nice and that's the sort of thing that comes with being able to see a new person naked like i think it just makes people happy <laughs> and so when you have that sort of high going on i'm such a romantic but when you have that sort of thing going on i think you can mistake that high that sort of natural endorphin rush of the new relationship you can mistake that for just a general sense of a general well-being that's independent of that. Very true. So then when you're not – so now you're not doing those things like going to a meeting or calling your sponsor or uh, interacting with the people you were interacting because with. Because you're cured. Yeah, because you, you feel good. You know, it's sort of like you didn't – but now 
your the source of your feeling good is no longer on the things that are that you earned. Well, not just the things that you earn, but the things that you were doing specifically to help keep you sober. That's the true. relationship feeling good, like that might assist you in it, but it in itself is not going to be permanent. And it's that feeling, I should say, is not going to be permanent. And also, it's not something that you started for the intent purpose of staying sober, at least. If you if you if you did start the relationship for that reason, that's a very strange reason to start one. But also, it's not going to be one that works. So when any sort of disruption comes in that relationship, the sort of normal bumps and bruises that uh, happen in a in a early relationship, then I shouldn't say bumps and bruises. That sounds vaguely like domestic violence. What I mean is more of the the bumps in the road that occur. Then you're going to that well-being is going to fly out the window and like i said you want to revert back to your old ways and cope in the way you're used to which is going and getting drunk or going and getting high so you want to make sure that you're still keeping up on the things that are specifically for addiction and uh sobriety instead of just relying on any other sort of just general sense of feeling good because, you know, like I said, those, those, they can be fleeting and they're not going to provide you that cushioning of sobriety that you're looking for with those other, uh, those other activities like meditation, calling people, going to meetings, stuff like that. So this is going to lead us to our last of this. Uh, Don't of date this someone from a place you frequent. So the article says structure and routine are crucial to the recovery process. Consider where you spend the majority of your time, work, 12-step meeting, favorite yoga class. To avoid future stressful situations and risk for relapse, do not date someone from these important places. A fallout will, will make a place that was once comfortable and conducive to sobriety uncomfortable. It may result in you going less frequently, if not at all. Romantic relationships can be stressful, especially during the recovery process. Proceed with caution. Remember, it is possible to have healthy relationships in recovery and to have fun while doing it. So I think Ellen and I are both an excellent source for this last one because yeah. neither of us have ever dated someone from any of those previously no. mentioned places. Nope. I remember in early recovery, one of the habits <laughs> I had, actually, I had a favorite yoga class because the, the ladies would be doing their stretches right in front of the window. So I'd go stand out on the sidewalk <laughs> with a big old tub of ice cream and just watch some downward dog till the till the sun went down. And that was a lovely place. That's a little creepy. But I made sure to not date any of those ladies. That is so good. I know. Because you read this article, I right? was there every day because I read this article way back when. And I was there every day, you know, as soon as they got started. And they would look at me, <laughs> but they would look at me from an upside down point of view from between their legs. And I'd wave to them and I'd blush and twist my foot on the sidewalk thusly and stuff like that. I know you can't see me, but I am really shaking my head right now. But she stays, folks. Yes, she stays. Yes, I do. Yes, uh, I do. That's right. <laughs> Chuck one up for the big dog. But uh, no, this is actually one that Ellen and I obviously did violate because we both went to uh, the same sobriety club here in uh, here in our lovely hometown. Well, to be fair, you know, I was two years sober and you were, what, four or five years sober or something? When we started dating? Yeah. 
Um, no, you were three years sober at that time, right? Yeah, I was three years sober when we got together. So, but it's it's actually a scream. I love this, actually. It's, it's <laughs> one of my favorite parts is that for the longest time when I knew Ellen, uh, before we started dating, before she saw the light, as I like to say, mm-hmm. uh, she would. I would hear her say to so many guys <laughs> out there, I would never date an alcoholic. I'm not dating anyone in recovery. I do not shit where I eat. This For those is, of you that don't believe she swears, she does. This, this is true. And she was just saying how against it she was and what a stupid idea it was and all of that. And me, I, I was just, very much that way. Um, because I, I knew about this this kind of policy. I mean, if you, you know, go to work every day, you don't want to date somebody at work. You know, you don't want to, I mean, if I don't know. it. I just knew this kind of principle, and that's why I would say that. So I got to be known as what, the ball buster or something like that? Uh, just unpleasant, I think, <laughs> was just more like uh, regarding the males, because she also read the riot act to a couple of them. And, but... <laughs> what well, she just hadn't i like to think of it she just didn't hadn't seen my moose knuckle in the right light yet oh my god to really get an appreciation really? for what recovery <laughs> could have so you know just saying throwing it out there would like that to be on the record but uh so yeah but in general it is a good idea to not do that if it is avoidable but sort of something i think um to as far as dating and recovery goes and you know sex and recovery and all that sort of stuff is that you're already showing up and you're already dealing with your you know addiction that led you there to whatever program so all of this i expect this is probably the part of recovery that is the least adhered to mm-hmm. everything we just talked about because sobriety's fuck it's fucking hard especially in the beginning and it's not to say this this advice isn't wise. It actually is very Plus, good Plus, you're advice. going to a place where you're frequently kind of pouring out your heart, which you're probably more used to doing that with an intimate partner or a family member. And you're pouring out your heart in these meetings, and people are supportive and love you unconditionally. So I think it's really easy to kind of transition into a relationship with people, I think it's kind of harder to just keep them as friends. Like, um, so, I mean, it's very important to like draw that boundary. So I don't, I don't see it as necessarily bad that you want to date somebody that you go to like a home group or something like that. Just keep in mind, you know, that you might have to find a new home group someday if it doesn't work out. And if you can answer that question and say, you know, if this doesn't go right and I'm willing to find another home group and still sobriety comes first, um, I'm not going to let this, you know, bring me down in a way, then I say go ahead and date. But uh, obviously, hopefully not in the first year um, and, you know, get to know people. Um, but, yeah, it's it's really easy to, to, to get in a relationship. I, I think in... In a way, it's easier to date somebody in recovery. I mean, totally opposite of what I used to think. Because they've already heard all your bad stuff and your worst foot forward. And they're still willing to date you. So, haha, Steve. Maybe you got the raw end of the deal. 
No, I still came out on top. But <laughs> it's it's just in general to say if you if you break any of these this guidance or you've never adhered to it or you just think it's all nonsense, trust me, you wouldn't be the first. The only warning I would give you that I think can sum up all of this pretty easily is that entering into new romantic relationships in early sobriety, or really at any point in sobriety, but let's especially say in early sobriety, is going to be risky. And you want to keep people close to you that in recovery, let them know what's going on. Have that person to call, have that sponsor or that you know friend or someone that you don't mind really letting them know what's going on of when you're upset and letting, and you know, you just, that's gotta be a very, it's, it's paramount at that point, because if my tendency was more to internalize that stuff and I'm not going to share this with anyone and it almost cost me my sobriety on more than one occasion. So I, it would have served me very well to be willing to just say, Hey, I'm kind of fucked up right now. Like my mind's not doing so good. It's really, I'm really, I'm really in some pain here and there's nothing wrong with that. It's like, it's, this is about saving, you know, to borrow a line that I've heard in the rooms many times, it's about saving your ass, not saving your face. So I'm not under the impression that just because we say this on this episode of the podcast, that we're going to talk you out of going out and getting into a relationship. Like no one's on their way to a booty call listening to this right now in early recovery (laughs) and going up, I better turn this call around, this car around. Like, no, that's not going to happen. But be aware that if you do start getting kind of emotionally fucked up because of something going on in that relationship, that it's par for the course. You're not the first one. It's totally fine. Just get on the phone with someone or get in touch with somebody. Hey, now, get in touch. Get in touch. But um, get, in, get in touch with somebody and just let yourself just let yourself be honest. That's really, I mean, in, in every avenue of recovery, that's that's good advice. It served me well. So, um, any any uh, closing thoughts on this topic, Ellen? I don't think so. I think we covered it all. Um, if there are any topics that you guys want to hear, make sure to let uh, Steve know on Sober Pod. Yeah, so that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for hanging in there with us. We had a thank you again, sweetheart, for coming on and being a co-host. No problem. We appreciate having we you here. We miss you, Carl. Uh, she misses Please you, Please come back. Uh, she wants you back, Carl. But uh, that's going to do it for us this week. So You left me alone with him. Yes. Again. <laughs> <laughs> it's strange. I had to pay Carl to leave me alone with my own girlfriend. Like, I don't know how that works, but uh, he he's... better have given you a lot of money. No, I gave him the money. I know. Wait. I said he better. Oh, I better have. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Good time to end. So remember to follow us on Twitter at SoberPod. Use the hashtag SoberPod shoutouts to tweet your recovery milestones and achievements so we can give you a shout out on the show. Submit your worst footed stories by tweeting at SoberPod and use the hashtag worst footed. Like SoberPod on Facebook and rate and review us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. As for the rest, don't forget to check out everything SoberPod at SoberPod.com. If you have any ideas for episode topics or would like to participate in an episode of SoberPod, visit SoberPod.com and message the show. How do you want to close us out, Ellen? Out. See ya.